Hey guys, what's going on? It's Corey from Lean Green Dad Radio, and I've got Parker here. Say hi, Parker. Hi. <laughs> Today hi. we've got an awesome interview coming with Ocean Robbins. Ocean has a brand new book, 31 Day Food Revolution. You're going to absolutely love it. We had a chance to talk to Ocean, and uh, boy, he is a pioneer, a leader in the plant-based world. So what do you say? Let's say get to it. Let's do it. Let's get to it. Let's do it. <laughs> awesome, buddy. everybody, welcome to Lean Green Dad Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to Lean Green Dad Radio. From sunny Orlando, Florida, this is Lean Green Dad Radio, the podcast that provides fuel for families. And now, here's your host, Corey Warren. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Corey here from Lean Green Dad Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, holy cow, we've got a superstar guest today, Ocean Robbins, as I mentioned. But um, hey, before we get started, I wanted to say that uh, we are proudly brought to you by the Parents on Demand Network, which is an app with a ton of great parental podcasts. So go check them out at parentsondemand.com. And um, holy cow, if it's your first time hearing us, what's going on? My name is Corey. Uh, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I am a podcast host, obviously, and uh, I make plant-based meals for my family to keep us as healthy as possible. Uh, You know, these quick and easy meal plans, what do they do? Well, they really help us stay motivated to just be as healthy as possible to keep my kids thriving. My daughter's in dance. My son is a basketball player, and uh, I have a little three-year-old, and I want him to have Hulk muscles, as he says. And so I try to you know, find some inspiring folks like Ocean uh, to help me make the most out of life and really uh, get some quick tips and information that we can use to give to you and you can help to fuel your family as they continue to grow. Um, Today's episode is brought to you by Clean Green Protein. It is on our website. You just go to the shop tab. You'll be able to find it. It's the only protein powder I use. It's a whole food protein powder. Um, Some of the best greens in the world. Vanilla chai flavor. Absolutely delicious. Go check it out over at uh, the shop tab over at leangreendad.com. So let's talk about our guest today. Uh, If you don't know who Ocean Robbins is, it's okay, but he's a huge deal, guys. A big deal. He's the co-founder of the global 500-plus member Food Revolution Network. It uh, it really just shows specific methods and ingredients um, and, and talks about the, the pesticides and the added sugars and the things that could be making you sick and what to do about it. Uh, in this new book, his book is, I've got it right here, The 31-Day Food Revolution. I had a chance to look through it. Amazing. Um, didn't get a chance to read it cover to cover, but did dive into it deeply so I could get a great understanding of the book. And in just 31 days, you can really find some delicious food, heal your gut, lose some excess weight, and lower your risk for disease, all while contributing to a healthier planet. And who doesn't want that, right? So without any further ado, I want to get right into it. This is an incredible interview with a great dad, a great human being, uh, Ocean Robbins. Here we go. All right, hey everybody, welcome. As you heard, Ocean Robbins is joining us today and I couldn't be more honored to have him with us. Uh, Ocean, thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the time uh, away from your family just for a few minutes to talk with us. My privilege. I mean, you know, (laughs) at the end of the day, I focus a lot on health, Corey, and we're always looking at health. And why do we want to be healthy? I think it's a means to an end. We want to be healthy. And one of the biggest motivations for a lot of people is we want to be there for our kids. We want to have the energy to play with them and meet them and grow with them as they grow. 
And eventually, you know, we want to be dancing at our grandchildren's weddings, you know? It's all about the next generation, and that's for many people their biggest motivator in life. So uh, at the end of the day, uh, the movements for health and the movements for family and healthy parenting are all so connected. Well, and we talked about the Food Revolution Network. We're absolutely going to get into that soon. But one angle that I kind of wanted to take with you, um, you know, there's there's a lot of your story out there. People understand about the Baskin Robbins history, um, and of course, we talked about a little a little before we got into the show and your grandfather and. Uh, your dad's choice to kind of divert and take a different, uh, his own rocky road, as you like to say, which is just so awesome. Um, but, you know, the, the journey to fatherhood for you, uh, that must have been absolutely an incredible experience. And, you know, you and your wife, Michelle, now have two beautiful boy twins. Um, and, uh, but but it, wasn't, it wasn't easy, right? I think getting there, uh, you, you think that your, your pregnancy is going to go one way, but then uh, and your birth is going to be this awesome, you know, completely natural birth, but, but things happen, right? And um, can, you, can you kind of take us through that journey and what that was like for you and, uh, and how you guys are doing right now? Sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, it wasn't easy. I don't think it ever is easy. You know, they, there's the old saying that life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Yeah. You know, my <laughs> wife and I were passionate home birth people who, you know, I think we were arguing about, you know, which flavor of classical music would be playing while she gave birth in the hot tub and the water birth. And we wound up having a very unexpected trajectory, which is that we had twins. And not only that, but as fate would have it, they were born very prematurely, nine weeks early. And um, so there we were, home birth people in the hospital with deep awareness of how important the early bonding days are to a newborn. But instead, our babies were in isolettes, surrounded by beeping machines and pokes and prods from nurses. And, and uh, we weren't even allowed to hold them for the first um, 48 hours. And so, you know, it was terrifying and somewhat traumatic to then go through six weeks of not knowing if our kids would live or die as they were in the hospital. And we, uh, you know, as soon as we were allowed, we would hold them. And we uh, pioneered in our local hospital something called kangaroo care, which is used for care of preemies where we've discovered that uh, isolates keep them at a certain body temperature, right? That's, the, that's one of their core purposes. But uh, we could hold them skin to skin mm. uh, inside of shirts and literally just press them against our bodies. And guess what? That's body temperature too. And uh, there's all kinds of information that transmits skin to skin. We were told by the folks in the hospital that our kids would be touch averse and would be uh, likely find human touch to be unpleasant, possibly for their whole lives. And yet, I think that skin-to-skin -skin contact helps to bridge that so that although they were incredibly sensitive and uh, their nervous systems have always been incredibly sensitive, they do like to cuddle. And uh, <laughs> even today, our, our twins are 17 years old and they still like to sit in my lap and tell stories and hang out together and share big hugs. And I don't know a lot of dads of 17-year-olds that can say that. <laughs> so That's it's truth. pretty sweet. You know, but certainly it was bumpy and hard. And then we got them home from the hospital and we knew right away that they had some neurological challenges and difficulties. The, these kids didn't sleep through the night. They didn't sleep more than three hours at a time for the first two years of life. They would wake up in terror every time they woke up. Something about that, that portal between uh, sleep and awake reminded them of the portal between the womb and life, I think, mm -hmm. and re-traumatized them. So they just woke up in terror every single day. And we just kept holding them and loving them uh, through that whole journey. And I remember when they were about two years old, the first time that a boy woke up gurgling, like happy. And I 
thought to myself, oh my God, I haven't had this experience yet. And I, that's when it dawned on me that this wasn't normal, right. that a lot of parents get used to not being woken literally every three hours all through the night in the first two years by a baby screaming in terror. Yes. And yeah, this is what we got, right? So you, you make the best of what life brings you. I think life isn't about avoiding suffering. If it was, we'd all be in seriously screwed. I think it's about making the best you can of what you get. And that's part of what defines us as human beings. So in my case, you know, that's what I got to do with my kids. And we've continued that journey. They're on the autism spectrum. And uh, we are learning about autism as a spiritual path, as a way of uh, learning about unconditional love. Remarkably enough, when I was a little kid, my my dad used to say to me that he was proud of me for my accomplishments because I was pretty precocious in many ways. And then he said, but I would, I want you to know, I would love you just as much if you were autistic. Mm. And then those words came back to me years later when my own kids were autistic. And I got to ask myself, do I love them just as much the way that they are? Or is my love conditional? Is it based on grades? Is it based on performance? Is it based on, you know, perceived output? Is it a strategic investment in social change or in my family's financial future, uh, in my ego and how I look to my friends and community? Or is it a genuine love that is just because? Because my kids deserve it, because all people deserve it. And this is what's been given to me to love with all my heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I, that's a question I wrestle with all the time, to be totally honest with you. Yeah. And yet I know what my values are. I know what I stand for. I know what I believe in. And of course, it's unconditional love. And it, it makes me learn how to love myself just because. Because there's parts of me that I realize I still love conditionally. I try to drive myself as if I will perform better or accomplish more if somehow my self-respect or my dignity or my self-love are on the line. And that creates urgency, but it doesn't necessarily create uh, the the overflowing cup that can give most bountifully. Mm -hmm. So my kids are teaching me about unconditional love for me and and frankly for everyone because they're not at the front of their class. They're not like the, the star students who are super precocious. If anything, they're maybe towards the back on a lot of the stuff that our society measures. And yet they're of huge love and huge generosity. And they try so hard and they pour themselves into their work and their journeys in so many ways. And I'm learning that you cannot measure somebody on this kind of rankism that always has winners and losers by definition. There's always going to be a bottom 5% and a bottom 50%. What the heck is that doing to the people who are in that group that are guaranteed to be in that group? And so I'm interested in uh, how we can have more holistic forms of motivation that help all of us to love people for who we are, not for what we do. It's the truth. And, you know, um, my son is also on a spectrum uh, and um, I have three kids and my my son Roger's on the spectrum. And uh, that's one of the main reasons one of our our nonprofit partners is Culture City, um, which, you know, is aimed at, you know, uh, reaching the masses for not only inclusivity, but acceptance, acceptance, because how hard is it to sit at a restaurant and your child might be having a a crazy fit or freaking out over something they smell, something they taste. And yes, from the outside, it does look very strange, right? But um, (laughs) no question. it's our job as parents to stay calm, to help guide them, uh, possibly remove them from a difficult situation and get them back on track. Right. And if if there was just a, a bit more of acceptance, from others um, and not, not so much judgment uh, from time to time, then I think the, the world will be a, a much better place, you know? Um, Absolutely. Well, and, you know, and, and we, we learn to work with them where they're at too, right? Like 
um, you know, our son River didn't make eye contact for his first 10 years of life. Mm-hmm. And then when he was uh, 10, we discovered a program called Sunrise, S-O-N-R-I-S-E, which focuses on, uh, instead, of, instead of training behavior to be different, it focuses on building relationship with autistic mm-hmm. kids. And so we were practicing this and our son Barbie was, uh, our son River was chewing on a Barbie's foot from across the room from me one day, which was one of his habits at that time. And instead of worrying about all the plastic that might be leaching into his system from a Barbie made in China, or wondering how my kid's ever going to have a dating life if he insists on chewing on Barbie feet all day long. I joined him and I, I sat across the room from him and I picked up a Barbie's foot and I started chewing on it from another Barbie. And at that moment, for the first time in his young life, River looked at me straight in the eyes and he had this huge smile come over his face and he was just beaming and I could almost hear him thinking, oh my God, there is intelligent life on this planet. <laughs> and... Uh, so then we're just like beaming in each other's eyes for the first time in his life. And I'm thrilled. And then something even more remarkable happens. He gestures for me to come over. Turns out his Barbie has two feet. And he's inviting me to chew on the other foot of his Barbie. So, so then we're like three inches apart, uh, beaming into each other's eyes with these huge smiles. And I have a tear rolling down my cheek. And we're chewing on Barbie feet. And so... <laughs> Uh, this is something that's now been repeated many times since. He doesn't chew on Barbie feet anymore, but we have things that he gets passionate about. Some of them are hilarious. And when I join him in his world, then we have connection. He still gets to have the familiar repetitive behaviors that give him a sense of security in an often overwhelming world, but he doesn't have to be alone in them anymore. We have connection. And from that connection, it's kind of like he shows me the door into his world and then when I join him there, I can show him the door out mm. into my world. Yeah, amazing. Uh, for, for me, the challenge is, is getting frustrated, incredibly frustrated and, um, and, and, um, and sometimes angry when he'll put himself in harm's way. And um, so I try, I try so hard uh, to tag team with my wife. And that's why uh, you know, having, having that partner there is so, so wonderful as well. Um, right. The, holy cow, we could have a whole show on this. Um, I, I want to to take what you've, what you've learned from your sons and what you've learned from um, some folks around the world. Um, your worldly journeys, I mean, even from such a young age, it's just unbelievable. I, I think that you, you learned more by the age of like 19 um, than most people did you know, in, in 20, 30 years. What, when you were having the, the dialogue worldwide on environmentalism and uh, the food we eat, what, what were some of those things that you learned? Um, because obviously we're, we look at America and we're in a bubble here and we've got, you know, the pharmaceutical uh, world thriving from sick people and we've got, uh, you know, a, a manufacturing world that is, you know, the big farms and manufacturing things the wrong way. So what, what did you take away from that, um, that, that you use now in not only the Food Revolution Network, but, you know, um, your books and um, your summit that, that can help us break out of this, this mentality that things are so difficult, that, that, that things are so challenging. Well, here's the, the bottom line for me is a lot of people ask, how do you have hope? Mm. And you know, when we look at the world, there is a lot of reasons to feel hope. There's the old saying that every baby is proof that God has not given up on the human race. You know, when we look into their eyes and see that life begins anew, Um, But we also have a lot of reasons to not have hope, like 
that every day on this planet we have less ancient forests every day we have less clean water and more polluted air every day we have less topsoil to grow our food with and uh, there are in fact major researchers at the united nations telling us that um, in the next generation or two we will expect to have about half of the farmland uh, that we did in 1960 mm. on the planet because of topsoil erosion uh, our aquifers are getting depleted, our climate's being destabilized, and every day we have more guns and bombs and more people and less resources with which to feed us. At the same time, um, I think that hope is not so much of a uh, noun as a verb. It's not something you get from sitting on the sidelines, watching the game, and wondering who's going to win. There are incalculable losses and victories for humanity and for the human spirit and for love every day on this planet. But at the end of the day, uh, what I source in is love. What I source in is possibility. And I'm not some intergalactic scorekeeper. I am a human being who's trying to do the best I can with this life that I have. So I care deeply about the fate of humanity and the fate of the world and the fate of future generations. And I also recognize that my responsibility is not to save the world. It's to do what I can to make it a little better or maybe a lot better. And I have immense hope in that because I know the power that every individual has to make an impact. And, it, you know, Helen Keller said, you know, I'm only one person and I can't do everything, but just because I can't do everything does not mean I will refuse to do that which I can. And uh, so we each, I think, have an opportunity and I would say a responsibility in this time and in this world to look at our world and to look at our values and visions and to realize there is a pretty big gap between where things are and where we want them to be. And I don't care how you identify on the political spectrum or, or what your aspirations and goals are, I guarantee you there are big gaps between how things are and how you'd like them to be in this world because we all feel that way. We all know that something better is possible. And I, I submit to you that we were born to bridge that gap. We were born to make a contribution that helps bring the world a little closer to the values and dreams that live in us. And we get to bridge that gap personally by helping to create the world we want. And we also get to bridge that gap collectively by participating as change agents in building a brighter future. Mm. And every parent knows that just because you were parented a certain way doesn't mean you have to parent the same way. That, that if you like things about how you were parented, by all means, osmose those and pass them on. But if there were things you didn't like, then let's make a change. You know, I was just talking with a friend last night who was beaten with a belt by his dad growing up. And, you know, when his kid was three, he was doing the same thing. And then he had an epiphany and he said, oh my gosh, you know, I, I realized that I'm stuck in this rut of thinking this is the only way to help my kid be on the, the good path, but there's gotta be a better way. And he committed to finding it and he never beat his kid again. And, you know, what he had done, he felt worked out okay. What, what happened to him was, was okay for him in the sense that he turned out okay, but he realized something better was possible. And I think each of us needs to look at how we can do better mm. in every aspect of our lives, not just parenting, but obviously I focus on food. And most of us grew up in a toxic food culture and I'm looking at, well, let's, what can we do that's better? So to me, that's where hope comes from. It comes from action, it comes from love, it comes from participation in possibility. And let, let's talk about kids that do grow up in a toxic food culture. So um, 
let's say there's a there's a set of parents that were raised a certain way and they they um they are you know thriving on the way that their parents raised them they're eating this raised them the same foods um even even thanksgiving right the the notion of having a turkeyless thanksgiving even for my own immediate family is just mind-boggling right right so you know how do we how do we as parents who have been raised a certain way decide we decide we want to make a shift right our kids are maybe i don't know seven eight years old they've been eating whatever it was i mean bacon the things that are just highly addictive the, the kids love if you introduce it to them sugar all this other stuff how do you simply make the shift i i believe that they follow your lead, right? And so if you truly are going to make this change, then it has to start with you. But how do, how do we get away from the idea of it being so daunting and overwhelming and just simplify things? Because I think you're the perfect person to ask this question because it doesn't have to be that hard, right? And everything here we do at Lean Green Dad is all about 15 minutes. Give me 15 minutes, I'll give you an incredible meal, right? Your kids are in the yeah. bath. This is how you do it. So how, how, do we, how do we make that transition if we are already deep-rooted into something that's so difficult? Yeah, well, that's the challenge. I mean, if you're starting from infancy, kids will eat what they're accustomed, what, they get familiar with what you feed them, and that's mm-hmm. normal to them. Uh, but if kids have gotten enculturated into uh, another kind of normal, or perhaps even biologically addicted to mm-hmm. junk foods, I mean, we, we have new studies showing that, that sugar is more addictive than cocaine. Mm. and uh, that even white flour can be highly addictive. And kids that have been eating this stuff from, from infancy may literally have biological addictions. And if you've ever seen a kid's behavior change dramatically, like they're freaking out and then you give them something sweet and they calm down, um, that can feel like an addictive pull for parents too. Um, but I want to invite you to consider that a cocaine addict who is given a hit may similarly stop freaking out and calm down when they get that hit. Now, a lot of parents listening might be feeling like, oh my God, this guy's crazy judgmental. Is he accusing me of drugging my kids? No, I am not. I'm saying that we live in a culture where this stuff is normalized. And if you want to do something different, sometimes you've got to, it feels like a bit of an uphill battle, Um, especially when school and parties and family members are all rewarding kids with junk food and celebrating the fun and, um, you know, recently there was a school closure in Pennsylvania and the kids, all, not a school closure, a shutdown and the kids couldn't get home because of a snowstorm. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, of course, they, they opened up the ice, they gave all the kids ice cream as they stayed overnight. And the newspaper headlines were all, oh, what a sweet school that they took care of the kids and gave them ice cream. And I was thinking, well, gosh, that is sweet. And I'm sure the kids had a better time and it was comforting. At the same time, uh, they were increasing the odds that these kids were going to be addicted to junk food and we're going to have heart disease and cancer and diabetes later in life. And that doesn't sound so sweet to me. So I am interested in how we can balance that. Obviously, no one wants to be a killjoy. No one wants to turn into the Grinch on Christmas uh, and rob our kids of joy and pleasure and fun. But let's, let's see if we can reward behaviors with positive things that are nourishing rather than negative things that are damaging. And um, you know, if, if you're a parent who's wanting to help your kids on a healthy path and there are some not so healthy things in their life right now, uh, one of the things you can do is change what you bring into the home. That's one place we have a lot of control. You can't control everything your kids are exposed to, but you can change what you bring in the home. For example, um, I had a lot of battles with my son Bodie some years back over potato chips. Um, you know, he, he would grab the potato chip bag and eat, eat the whole bag if he could. So then 
I'd give him five and he'd, he'd demand 10 and then he'd eat the 10 and he'd demand 10 more. And, you know, we had all these struggles. So I started hiding the potato chips and, you know, he would scour the house. And one day he found them hiding under my bed and he devoured the, he ran off with the loot and locked himself in his room and ate the whole bag and came out with this big smile on his face as he handed me the empty wrapper. So uh, it was a bit of a struggle and we were literally having fights about it. Every time we go shopping for food, he would demand that we go to aisle five first thing so he could grab himself a bag of you know what. And then, then, that, then he would munch it the whole time we're in the store and that would give me uh, cooperation while we did the rest of our shopping. Otherwise, we'd be looking at a meltdown. Um, you are incredible. I can't believe you're sharing this. Thank you so much. Like people think you're, everything's perfect, right? Your kids are snacking on raw celery every day, right? <laughs> Thank you for being real, for goodness sake. That's right. So, so, so one day I go to my wife and I say, hey, what should we do? Uh, Mike, you know, Bodie and I are in all this conflict. She said, I think you should stop buying potato chips. Oh. And I'm like, wait, that means I have to stop eating potato chips. Like, like yes, it does. <laughs> so, so, so we stopped buying them and I didn't take him shopping for a couple of weeks. So we'd break the habit and we didn't buy potato chips. And amazingly, within a day or two, he wasn't looking for them. And within a couple of weeks, he was over it. And we never had a fight over potato chips again, knock on wood, but that was, that was seven years ago. Yeah. So um, I think that uh, it may sound really trite, but the easiest way to not have a fight with a kid over food is to not buy it in the first place. And then you also want to crowd out the bad stuff with the good stuff. We discovered that our kids were often getting snacky while we were making dinner and they would you know, scour through the cupboards and pull out whatever the least healthy thing they could find was fill up on that and then have no room for what we were serving for dinner. And I'd go to all this work to make dinner and then my wife and I would eat it and the kids <laughs> would so just true. ask what was for dessert. Yes. And uh, so, uh, so what we started doing was we would make a pot of steamed vegetables or some you know, raw veggies and stick them out on the table with some hummus or some kind of dressing or sauce and they would dip and munch. And if they got snacky, that would be the path of least resistance. Mm. Um, Lately, it's been fruit. They just love munching on fruit. And, you know, they're, they're, we just keep fruit out in the kitchen all, at all times. And they just go snack on that. And I know that that's pretty healthy as our raw vegetables, as our steamed vegetables. So we try to just have the, the easiest option be the healthy stuff. We have little baggies of trail mix. And anytime we're going out on the road, we just take a couple. And then if somebody gets hungry, we're not stuck having to go to a 7-Eleven to scavenge for something because we've got food right with us. So those are the kinds of things that can really help uh, set you up for success on the path. And what I want to say is that um, taste buds change really fast uh, in all of us, but especially in the youngsters. So you would be amazed how quickly what seem like intractable patterns can evolve. Now, not always. And some kids do have likes and dislikes that are pretty deep rooted. Some people love peanut butter. Some of them hate it. Uh, some kids love pasta. Others hate it. You know, you find what, what your um, kids respond to. Uh, and then you can also gradually add things. For example, if your kids like pasta, try making it with whole grains or gluten-free or try using a sauce that then you blend up and then you add in some veggies to the blended sauce. You know, a little bit, 5%, 10%, and then you gradually add a little more and slowly their taste buds will evolve. <clears throat> so there are a lot of tricks for helping to make it appealing for kids to get in good habits. But what I want to say is that once those habits are there, there's no looking back. Like water that goes into grooves that can eventually carve out something as deep as the Grand Canyon. When you create the grooves or the pathways, or food pathways and neural pathways around food, 
in yourself as well as in your family, uh, once they're there, it gets easier and easier for that to be the path of least resistance. And even when someone's tired or cranky, they grab the celery. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, let's, let's talk about grandparents for a second, and especially the transformation that happened with your grandpa. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you share that story, uh, and then we'll, we'll kind of break it down a little bit more. But so grandpa, uh, you know, Baskin Robbins, founder of grandpa, um, was, uh, I think he was told he needed to change the way that he ate, and something happened at the doctor's office, right? Well, <laughs> share that with us. Okay, you got it. Yeah. So as as you just just to recap, so you know, my grandpa found a Baskin Robbins. My dad walked away from the ice cream cone shaped swimming pool and any access to the family wealth. And um, you know, my dad's uncle Bert had Bert Baskin had died of heart disease at the age of fifty four, and so my grandpa had lost his brother in law and business partner. Um, but he got a pretty big investment nonetheless, and thinking there was no connection between diet and health. And then at the age of 72, he was practically on death's door. He had serious diabetes and heart disease and weight issues. And his doctors told him he didn't have long to live uh, unless he made some big changes. And they handed him a copy of a book they thought could help him, which was a book by the name of Diet for New America, which my dad had written, uh, empowering people about food and health. And uh, the amazing thing is that my grandpa actually read the book. He read the book the doctor gave him, not the book that was signed that my dad had given him a couple years earlier. Um, but he did read the book and he, um, he applied its advice. He gave up sugar, he cut way down on his meat consumption, and he started eating a lot more vegetables. He even gave up ice cream and wow. he got results. The kind of results that, to be honest with you, are predictable. Uh, what we see this happen time and again, he lost 30 pounds. He got off all of his diabetes and blood pressure medications because he no longer needed them. Uh, his blood sugar levels were stable. His golf game improved seven strokes. And he wound up living another um, 18 more healthy years. And uh, so we've seen in our family what can happen when we eat the standard American diet, which is that we get the standard American diseases. And we've also seen what can happen when we make a change, as my grandpa did. My dad's uncle, unfortunately, never got that chance. And he passed away at 54, but my grandpa did. And he, got, he reaped the benefits. Mm. And uh, you know, when he was on, uh, at the end of his life, 18 years later, in his 90s, my dad and I were with him. And you know, he was his final days now. And he said to my dad, you know, when you left Baskin Robbins, to be honest, I thought you were crazy. Mm. And I might have been right, he said. And then he looked at both of us and he said, thank God some of us have lived long enough to learn a few new things. And then he looked at me and he said, and I want you to know I'm proud of you because what you're doing matters and it's making a difference. Yeah. And you know, can you imagine how much moral fiber it takes for a man in his position who has manufactured and sold more ice cream than anyone who's ever lived to give up ice cream? Mm. Can you imagine what it takes for him to say to the renegade son who walked away from his life's work you were right. Thank God some of us have lived long enough to learn a few new things. So I think that that's tremendous. And honestly, I admire his courage and his courage to make a change more even than all his business achievements. Mm. And I think it, it, my grandpa was one tough cookie. He was beyond stubborn. And if he could make changes like this, then I think there's hope for the rest of us too. Yeah, I think so too. Absolutely incredible. What an incredible story. Um, and thanks, thanks again for, for sharing.
Okay, so I want to know what's going on with Food Revolution Network. I want to know when the next summit is, and I want to know how we can help uh, because we have some passionate parents listening to this podcast. We have some parents that might be just discovering the podcast for the first time. You never know who's listening. So how can we get involved? How can we help? Well, what I want to ask for right now is your help in spreading the food revolution. And the number one way you can do that is by helping spread my brand new book, 31 Day Food Revolution, which is coming out uh, right now. And I'm thrilled about it. Um, this is really, uh, it's my first book. And this is capturing the food revolution message in a really simple way. So there's 31 chapters and every chapter ends with three steps you can take, three ways you can implement what you just learned in this chapter. And there's a lot on kids and raising healthy families. And the story arc of the book is there's four parts. So part one is detoxify. It's about how you can rid your body, your home, your family of all the toxins that might be seeping in from your water, from food storage containers, from cookware, and of course, from the food you eat. And then part two is nourish. It focuses on a, how to take advantage of the latest learnings of medical science so that you can feed yourself and your family optimally so you can thrive and saturate your body with micronutrients and fight cancer and Alzheimer's and, and heart disease and diabetes and so many other ailments that we face today with food. And then part three is gather. It's about how you really build your tribe, your community, and your family to support you and to support each other on a healthy eating path so we can change the culture that surrounds us. And then part four is transform. It's how we look at food as an opportunity to be change agents on the planet. You know, you want to put your own oxygen mask on first before helping others on an airplane, right? But then we've got to save the freaking plane. And, and the reality is that right now we live in a toxic food culture and it's, it's not enough for me to just want to be healthy. I want to change the culture so that the poor and the impoverished and the people who don't have the benefit and the privilege of all the knowledge that I have can have an easier time doing the right thing and can have the knowledge they need to put it into action. So Transform is all about that. And the spoiler alert is that it's a heck of a lot easier to change the world than you probably realize. Mm. So, uh, so that's the kind of story arc of the book. And my goal is to empower food revolutionaries to change this world together. And this book is my, my uh, stake in the ground for that mission. And I want to invite you to join me in uh, buying it, sharing it with friends and loved ones and helping get the word out. We need to get store stocking it. We need to get Amazon promoting it. We need to get every resource out there to spread the mission and spread the word because I believe this book can help change the world. And that's where I want your help. So go ahead and get 31 Day Food Revolution. The most powerful way to get it is at your local independent bookstore. That's how we can really drive up the engagement. Uh, but if you want to go a simpler way and buy it online, go for it. You can also go to 31dayfoodrevolution.com and, uh, and get it on there from our website as well. Uh, any step you take, what really matters is you're an agent of change now. Now that you know how, ma how much food matters, you get to be a part of changing the world. So thank you for that. And whether this book is for you or not, let's do this thing together. Oh, incredible. Folks, you heard it. You heard it first from the man himself, Mr. Ocean Robbins. Go out there, grab this book. I'm going to link to it, of course, in the show notes. And then um, we'll also tell you uh, to, hey, go out there, advocate. If you want to advocate, get this book in your local bookstore. Go to your Barnes & Noble if you still have one and say, hey, listen, we need this book. Uh, is it going to be there, Ocean? Do you know? Is it going to be distributed in Barnes & Noble? Or? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yes, it Good. will be. And uh, you can go ahead. If for some reason your local Barnes & Noble doesn't have it, 
then fix that by ordering it, and then they'll stock it, probably not just for you, but for a lot of other customers. You know, this is how the world changes, honestly. It's how we're changing the food industry. Yeah. Uh, it's why Safeway and Kroger's and Walmart are stocking organic foods with pride because individual people asked them for it and they realized there was demand. So you create demand and you help change culture. And that's why book launches are so important because when a book first comes out, if it gets in the pipelines, if stores realize it matters, then they feature it. And then when browsers are coming through, they see the book. So it's absolutely a great way to spread the word. And yes, if I have my expectations met, it should be in stores across the country. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Uh, Ocean, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me, for sharing your fatherhood journey. Uh, and of course, that, that personal story about your grandfather. I think it's, it's wonderful for folks to hear. It's an inspiration. And uh, we'll, we'll continue to follow you and, and wish you well uh, on, on the book release and everything else to come. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Corey. It's a pleasure being with you. And I, I thank you and every, everyone who is listening right now. Thank you for caring about the next generation and for caring how you can be clean and lean and green and healthy and participate in this revolution in consciousness and in action because we're building a healthier world together, aren't we? Thank you so sure. much. All right. Hey guys, what's up? It's Corey back in the studio. Thank you so much for making it through another episode of Lean Green Dad Radio. Make sure to go check us out over at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and we've even got a YouTube channel for you. So um, listen, guys, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, really, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Ocean Share His Story. And thanks for always uh, trying to go as lean and green as possible and keep going that extra mile for your family. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.